0: We're in the fourth week of a message series we're calling The Grace Way. What we're doing is going back into the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus to rediscover radical grace. Now, the truth is that that's kind of a redundant phrase, radical grace. There is no other kind. Grace, by its very nature, is is shocking and scandalous and and, and, uh, it turns everything upside down and inside out just because it's grace. That's why we've said uh, repeatedly that, that grace confuses us and it scares us and it upsets us because it is just so opposite of the way we think things are and the way we think things ought to be you know again from the very beginning over and over I've said that grace is the most difficult thing for us to get our heads and our hearts around that, that we struggle to understand God's amazing shocking life-giving grace understanding that his his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his acceptance are given to us for free when we're told that we can't earn grace that we can't deserve it. We can't make ourselves worthy to receive it. When we hear that, that God gives us grace for no other reason than that we've got to have it, and He's the only one who's got it, and He gives it to us, we struggle to make that fit into the world that we live in. So there's no better place for us to go than back to the Gospels. Jesus was the embodiment of grace. Grace was in him. Grace was on him. Everything he said, everything he did, every interaction that he had with people. We see him already in this series. We've seen him interact with people in ways that just are stunning in the grace and the mercy that he offers. We've heard him tell these stories about the way things really are in the kingdom of God, and it just blows us away. Because the Gospels is where we need to go to get a grip. Get a handle on God's amazing, shocking, life-changing grace. We've only got two weeks left, this week and next. So we're going to jump right in today. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 18. The Gospel of Luke chapter 18. There's a reality that is uh, really very unsettling if we let ourselves think about it too much. When Jesus was on this earth, people basically responded to him, in one of two ways. Now, you may not know, you, you know if you've been around here very long, that I have a pet peeve with people who say, there are two kinds of people in this world. See, I, because it's a pet peeve for me because I believe there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who think there are two kinds of people in this world, and there are people who know that there are many, many more types of people than just two. When Jesus was on earth, people basically responded to him in one of two ways. Either they were drawn to him or they were repelled by him. That's pretty much it. Everybody he interacts with fits in one of those two categories. They were either drawn to Jesus or they were repelled by him. They either accepted him or they rejected him. Now that's not the unsettling part. Here's the unsettling part. It's that the people who rejected Jesus were, for the most part, people who were Bible-believing, church-going, good-deed-doing, money-giving, God-honoring people. They were the ones who rejected Jesus. The people who had single-handedly kept the worship of the one true God alive for 1,500 years rejected And the people who accepted him, again, for the most part, were people who were out on the fringes, out on the margins of society. They weren't influential people. They weren't considered to be significant people or important people. They weren't pillars of the community types. If they were thought of at all, it wasn't, they, they weren't thought of as being especially important or even especially good. In fact, in many cases, they were people who were outcasts and sinners and lowlifes. They were the kind of people that would prompt the good people to say to Jesus or to his followers, why in the world do you hang out with such scum? I've said it before, the harshest words that Jesus ever speaks are spoken to good religious people, the people who will eventually reject Him. And to the other folks, to the losers, those people who eagerly accept Him and embrace His message, Jesus speaks only and always of His love and His acceptance and His forgiveness. Now that's what's unsettling. There's, the, uh, there's that character of grace that we've talked about a couple times that makes us say, wait a minute, that can't be right. A couple of weeks ago I said we, we would make good Buddhists. The truth is we'd, we'd kind of make good Eastern religion people in general, because we believe in karma. I, I can't tell you, and you know where it shows up? On Facebook. But how come Christian people always talk about karma on Facebook? But that's how we are. See, we've convinced ourselves that good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff. That if you do good, good's going to happen to you. And if you do bad, bad's going to happen to you. And then the gospel of grace says this. Hey, good people, you can't be good enough. No matter how good you are, you can't be good enough to earn it or deserve it. And then it says to the bad people, and you can't be bad enough that God writes you off and pushes you away. Yeah, we don't like that. So we come to Luke 18, and and, and it really is an up is down, left is right. If this is true, I don't know what I believe anymore kind of story. Jesus is, is going to show us in this story, I think, why we do what we do when it comes to grace. And he's going to show us how important it is to our life and to our place in the kingdom that we understand why we do what we do when it comes to grace. We're in Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to be up on the screen. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. This is one of those places, and I'll come back to this point a couple more times. This is one of those places where we do not benefit by knowing the whole story. And I'll explain a little bit more about that. Uh, in just a few minutes, but we'll pick up in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves Will be exalted. Now, right off the bat, Jesus has got a target audience. He's got some people that he's talking directly to when he tells this story. He's, he's talking to people who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Jesus is talking to people who think they've got this God thing figured out who think they know now what they've got to do to get God to to like them and favor them and accept them. These are the people that are convinced that they are in control in this conditional world. They've got it figured out, right? And that's a big problem for them. In fact, that's the biggest problem for performance-based believers. They think they've got it all figured out. They've got the checklist down. They know, do this, don't do that. Go here, don't go there. See this, don't see that. Wear this, don't wear that. Check, 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 check. They can't understand why everybody hasn't figured it out. That's why Jesus says, he told this story to people who were confident in their own righteousness and scorned everybody else. Your translation may say, they despised everybody else. We figured it out, why can't you? Our group's got it together. Why can't your group get it together? You know, there's some of those folks with us here today. Well, they all came to the first service. Um, (laughs) But I say that because there's just too many people who think, hey, I'm a pretty good person, right? I mean... We we set the bar so low. I'm a good person. I mean, after all, I've never murdered anybody. (laughs) I've never robbed a bank. I've never cheated on my spouse. Jesus is telling the story for that guy. He's telling the story to those people who think they are good because they act good. Who think they're good because they behave. Make no mistake, those people that Jesus told that story to, they think the Pharisee is the hero in Jesus' story. That's what, really what they believe. Again, this is, this is a place where you know, we've got the benefit of having the whole story because we hear Pharisee and we go, "Boo!" But that wouldn't have happened in Jesus' day. In, in Jesus' day, everybody thought the Pharisee was the good guy. He was wearing the white hat. He was a church leader in his town. He was super religious and and extremely careful about obeying the Old Testament law. He had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Folks, those are some of the really long ones. He had them memorized. And what's more, he didn't just have those memorized and and go by them. That was called the Torah. He'd memorized the Torah. But he also had memorized the Talmud. The Talmud was a commentary on the Torah. And then he had memorized what was known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah was another commentary on the Talmud and the Torah. I mean, this guy lived by the books. But this tax collector... Well, last week we spent quite a bit of time making sure that we, we understood how far out on the fringes of society this guy really would be. We talked about Zacchaeus last week. And we said that the people who were hearing Jesus tell this story, they hated the tax collector. They, they thought he was the scum of the earth. He is, he's the bad guy. He's the villain. He's the one in the black hat. They would have cheered for the Pharisee and booed the tax collector. Jesus could not have brought together in one story two more different, distinct people in in the eyes of the culture in which they live. The Pharisee is the good person, the pillar of the community. Surely he's God's favorite. The tax collector is the bad person, the very embodiment of evil and wickedness. I want to make sure that we get this picture. Understanding what Jesus is telling us here depends on us getting this picture. So I put together a a modern paraphrase of this story to kind of pull the scripture into our day. And if you've ever read the message, you know what a paraphrase is. Uh, Mine's not quite that good, so we'll just call it the mess. Um, We'll call it the parable of the the churchgoer and the drug dealer. Charlie Churchgoer walked into church one Sunday morning He was disgusted to see Danny the drug dealer there because he had just gotten out of jail. Charlie warned some of the ushers to keep a close watch on Danny because he was a sorry, low-life loser. As the service began, the pastor asked Charlie to pray. He walked proudly to the microphone and began to pray using his special prayer voice. Heavenly Father, I thank Thee that I have been a deacon in this church for 20 years. I even remember when I helped build this building with my own two hands. I thank Thee, O God, that I I have not missed a single Sunday for nearly ten years. And I thank Thee that Thou hast blessed me financially so that I am able to give You ten percent. And I thank Thee that I am morally pure for I don't drink and I don't cuss on Sundays and I don't smoke unfiltered cigarettes and I don't use drugs or sell them like some people here do. Lord, we need more people in our church just like me. Lead, guide, and direct us. Amen. After napping through most of the sermon, Charlie Churchgoer strolled out of church feeling good about himself because he had made it through another Sunday. He liked leaving church because then he didn't have to think about God again until the next Sunday. Meanwhile, Danny, drug dealer, slumped on the back pew. After hearing the message about God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness, he dropped to his knees and began to pray. Holding his face in his hands, he sobbed, God, I'm the dirtiest sinner in town, and I'm so sorry. I know I don't deserve it, but is there any way that you can wash away my filthy mistakes? Please, God, I need you. I tell you, it was Danny Drug Dealer and not Charlie Churchgoer who went home that day right with God. He who puffs out his chest and struts his stuff before God will eventually be slapped down. But when you admit that you are like dirt compared to God's purity, He'll pick you up and clean you up and give you another chance. That's the SGV. you'll get it. you think about it on the way home, you'll get it. First service guy. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing with this story. Let me tell you what he's doing to these people that are hearing this story. He is yanking the rug. No, not just the rug. He is yanking out the ground on which they stand right out from under their feet. He's taking the good guy. Everybody knows this Pharisee's the good guy, and making him the bad guy. And he's taking the guy that everybody knows is the bad guy, turning him into the good guy. Let me tell you what else he's doing with this story. He's holding up a mirror to you and me, and he's letting us see where we stand because each one of us is in one of those two groups that we talked about a moment ago. We're either drawn to Jesus or we're repelled by Him. We're either trusting in ourselves and our goodness and our ability to figure out how to get what we want from God, or we are desperately aware that there is nothing good in us. And if we have any hope, it comes to us from God through Jesus Christ. We're one of those two places. It boils down to the fact that we are either rejectors of God's grace or acceptors of His grace. Let's spend some time looking at how we can tell the difference. All right, this just give you a boatload of gut level truth today, okay? No way to candy coat this. So just start out with this Rejectors of grace take pride in their own goodness. Rejectors of grace take pride in their own goodness. Did you hear the Pharisees' prayer? I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I'm just not like these other people, Lord. I'm not saying, I I would never say that I was perfect, but I'm not too bad. In fact, I'm better than that guy over there. He was convinced that he had his behavior under control. You see all these things I'm doing, God? He was convinced that he had his spiritual life under control. In fact, he was convinced that he had gone above and beyond in his spiritual life. I fast twice a week. Their religion said you only had to fast one day a year. Some translations, a a better translation uh, than the the New Living, he says, I give you a tenth of all I have or of all I possess. When all the law required was was that they give 10% of their income. He's convinced he's got it right. And he is so, so proud. Interestingly enough, these men both stand by themselves, but for very different reasons. The Pharisee stands by himself because he's convinced himself that nobody else is as good as he is. So proud. Sometimes pride can be a good thing. There's absolutely nothing wrong in taking pride in our children's accomplishments or being proud of our nation or uh, you know, proud of our neighborhood or, or proud of doing a good job at our work. But That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what's going on with the Pharisee in this story. What Jesus is talking about is self-centered, arrogant, judgmental pride that causes us to reject God and His offer of grace. I mean, after all, if, if we're as good as this Pharisee thinks he is, why do we need God? So how can we recognize the presence of this dangerous pride? There are three ways, I think. Pride loves to talk about I. I want to talk about me. In verses 11 and 12, the Pharisee says I, uses the word I eight times. I thank you, God. I'm not like other people. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I'm not a sinner. I fast. I give. And those are all good things. All good things. We should pray and thank God. And, and fasting is a spiritual practice that has enormous potential benefits. And, and man, giving is, speaking as a pastor, fantastic. We ought to do more. Amen? Come on. But if we're doing those things because we think they'll get us into heaven or because we want to make ourselves look good in front of other people, then those good things can become very dangerous. In the Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 18, it says that pride, our pride goes before our destruction and haughtiness before a fall. A thousand years later, Paul would paraphrase that when he said, when you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Pride seldom admits a need. You think this Pharisee thought he needed anything from anybody else? He got it all down, right? Pride gives us a false sense of security in our self-sufficiency. You ever hear anybody say, I'm too proud to ask for help? Let me tell you what the real problem is there. When we're too proud to ask for help, our problem is pride. That's our biggest problem. When a person is caught up in this kind of pride and you ask them, how can I pray for you? You know what you're going to hear? Oh, no, 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 I, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm fine. Fine as fine can be. Uh, my wife, she's fine. We, fine. Our children, they're all fine. We're, it's just, around our house, it's just fine, 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 fine. No, 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 I, I, we're all right. There's really nothing you can pray for me about. They say that because they're too proud to admit that they have a need because they're afraid if they tell you how they're hurting and messed up, they'll lose their standing. They're afraid if they have to admit that they struggle, they'll have to step down off the pedestal. They're afraid if they're real and honest that the mask will crack and we won't like what we see behind it. Pride sees the faults of others. You notice how quick that Pharisee is to criticize and condemn the tax collector? Boom. I'm thankful, God, that I'm not like that guy. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like him. Spiritual pride blinds us. It blinds us to our own faults, and it, at the same time, it magnifies the faults of other people. Well, let me tell you what the problem is with that. When we compare ourselves to someone else, we're using the wrong standard. That's like like trying to measure our weight with a yardstick. You're going to break that yardstick. It doesn't work. See, God's measuring stick is not us in comparison to the goodness or badness of another person, God's standard is Jesus. How do we measure up to Him? No, 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 we we just want to keep thinking that we're good because we've never robbed a bank or murdered anybody. Well, duh. You know, when we compare ourselves to a serial killer, it's not too hard to look like a moral hero. But let me tell you what's more insidious and much more common. That's thinking that we're better than someone else because we don't look like they do or dress like they do. Or listen to the music they listen to. Because we boycott the right things. That's what the Pharisee's doing here. I mean, that's really what he's doing. And we're fooling ourselves if we think that we're not dealing with this very same issue. God doesn't grade on the curve. It's pass fail. It it doesn't matter if we're a little bit better or a little bit worse than somebody else. It just that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is do we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That's it. Our house is white, white siding on it. I like the way it looks. Looks clean until it snows, and then it looks pretty dingy and pretty dirty. It's the same house. It's just a different backdrop. You know, when I compare myself to a murderer or an adulterer or to you, (laughs) I look pretty good. But when I stand up next to the holiness and purity of Jesus, it's a whole different picture. That's where the rejectors of grace get off track. One problem is they don't even realize they're rejecting grace. But they think they're good. When the reality is, they're not any different than the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus hung out with. In fact, they're not any different than the murderers and the drug dealers that we look down on. That's all of us. That's all of us. A little further down in chapter 18, Luke tells us that Jesus says, Only God is good. Only God is truly good. And in Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul says, no one is righteous. Not even one. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. It is a serious mistake to overestimate our own goodness. Rejectors of grace take pride in their goodness. And acceptors of grace take refuge in God's goodness. Acceptors of grace take refuge in God's goodness. The tax collector occupies the lowest rung in that society. There's no other way to say it. He is the lowest of the low, the most evil of people. We In our life group this week, I don't know if other life groups had this experience, but we struggled to come up with, okay, who are some contemporary people that we would see the same way they saw the tax collectors? You know where we landed? We landed on, on, on pedophiles, on child abusers and serial killers. I mean, that's really what it was about. They were traitors, so they're on the level of an American citizen who who goes to fight with Al-Qaeda. They were crooks. They they cheated people out of their money. They abused people financially. You know, they're worse than Bernie Madoff. That's why the twist in this story is so mind-blowing. You know, if I was to tell you that Billy Graham and Charles Manson went to pray. You would be shocked if I said that it was Charles Manson who left that prayer meeting right with God and not Billy Graham. And that's how shocking it would have been to Jesus' audience to hear him say that the evil tax collector went home justified and not the Pharisee. And I don't tell you that so you can win a Bible trivia contest. Although if you do, you should tithe. I want us to realize how evil this person really is and how they are seen by society and understand that if they can have a right relationship with God, then there is hope for every one of us. That's that's how they would have understood it. Wait a minute, Jesus. This can't be right. This tax collector can go home justified. That's what Jesus said. That he went home being seen through God's eyes as if he had never sinned and as if he had always obeyed. So how does that happen? How does that that happen that this, this man is welcomed by a righteous and holy God? Well, to answer that question, we've got to look at the tax collector's prayer. Very different from that of the Pharisee. Jesus tells us that he stood at a distance. Remember, they both stood by themselves. But the Pharisee stood by himself because no one else was as good as he was. The tax collector stood by himself because no one else was as bad as he was. He sat on the back row, the furthest seat, away from the decent people. He wouldn't even dare lift his eyes up toward heaven. And then he did something that sounds strange to us, but they understood it. He beat his chest. It was a sign and a symbol in those Middle Eastern cultures of deep sorrow and regret and remorse for what he had done in the way that he lived. He's so unlike the Pharisee. The the Pharisee is just blissfully unaware of his own sinfulness. He's just as happy as he can be, as dumb as he is. And the tax collector is so aware of how sinful he is. He can't even go be around people. So ashamed, he can't bear the thought of looking God in the face. And so he just prays a simple prayer. And I want to tell you, it is a prayer that God always hears and always answers. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. In the original language, he literally calls himself the sinner. The worst. He's not ignorant about his sin. He knows he's a bad person. And he doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't list his good points. Lord, remember that time that I... He doesn't promise to do something good. To balance things out, right? to earn God's favor. He doesn't say, God, if you just give me one more chance, I'll do better, I'll try harder. He just admits that he's a sinner and asks for mercy. He's not a good person. He is not a good person. But by asking for mercy, he shows that he believes that God is good. That God is good. It's a prayer that indicates He's ready to accept God's grace and take refuge in God's goodness. Folks, it's not about long, elaborate, eloquent prayers full of religious words. It's not about, you know, holding your hands right. It's about a simple prayer that comes from the heart, a prayer that God always hears. And always answers. God always welcomes those who are willing to put total weight on, complete trust in His goodness. This is good news for bad people. Good news for bad people. It means that when we've totally blown it, when we have made a complete mess out of our lives by our choices, if we're willing to admit it and ask for forgiveness, God will always forgive us every single time. No matter who we are or what we've done. Well, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. No, I guess I don't. So take a look around. When you look into the faces of people around you, whether it's at this church or out on the street or where you work or where you go to school or around your dinner table, you are looking at people who have lied and cheated, and stolen. You're looking at people who've broken the law and gone to jail, and people who've gossiped and got away with it. When we look around, we're looking at people who've cheated on their taxes, or on their employer, or on their spouse. When we look around, we're looking at people who get drunk, take pills, to dull some emotional pain or just because they like a good buzz. When we look around, we're looking at people who've looked at pornography or told lies to impress another person or to make the sale, close the deal. We may not be looking at any murderers, but we are surely looking at people who have killed reputations with their tongues. It's all of us. All have sinned. We just saw it in Romans 3 a moment ago. No one is righteous. Not even one. No one does good. Not a single one. And then that verse I just quoted, Romans chapter 3, a little further down there in Romans, Paul says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And the biggest mistake we can make is to stop right there, is to not read any further. Paul didn't stop writing there. We need to keep reading there because here's what he says. Yes, he says, all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But then look at what he says next. Yet God with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Boy, that, we ought to read that again. People are made right with God. And you know, my Bible just doesn't say when they do everything right. When they check all the to-dos off the list. You know, when when they look right, talk right, smell right, act right. My Bible says people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. It's going to shock somebody. Sin is no longer the issue. It's either we believe or we don't believe. We either believe in Jesus or we don't. We're we're either a rejecter of His grace or an acceptor of His grace. We may have sinned in the most terrible way imaginable. I mean, you just may not be able to think of anybody that's done worse than what you've done. But God, listen, God is ready to give us His love and His acceptance and His forgiveness if we accept His grace and put our trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Trust in His goodness and not our own. Admit our sin and put our full weight on what God did in Christ Jesus. Then God welcomes us with joy. Because that's the grace way. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. That's the great leveler. It's the.